0: Good morning. Uh, I've already had conversation with more than one person who said they were a little cloudy headed today and that there would be others. They were predicting clouds today inside because yesterday was a big day here at Central Christian Church and uh, a lot of people through our building, around our parking lot, a lot of work done. You wouldn't know it now that the dust has settled. Um, but I am praying and I ask you to continue to pray that the seeds that were planted yesterday will take root and will do good, and as a result, people will show up. I wish that I had time to acknowledge all the work that was accomplished yesterday, the things that were done, and and name names, but as soon as I start doing that, I leave someone out, so I'm not going to start, but just thank the Lord for what was accomplished. It was a great thing. You can say amen to that. Uh, If you were part of it, thank you. and uh, Let's continue to pray that that's going to take off. This is today number three installment in a series that we started up about reaching the next generation. Our Thrive plan for the next three years has those three specific ways we're going to reach. One is that we're going to be reaching for Jesus, to grow up ourselves. That's about discipleship. We're going to be reaching for the lost, for people who are outside of the body of Christ. And specifically, the third one is, we're going to reach for the next generation. Those who are coming into the role that the older generation will one day be leaving vacant, and it needs to be filled. And so remember this morning, you are of a generation. You're one of five generations. We're living in this time when five generations live together because people are living longer. They're not being born younger. They're living longer, all right? So you fit into that, and you have all of the joys and challenges of those generations living together. How's that working for you? Well, sometimes it's a lot of fun, isn't it? And sometimes it's not what we would call fun, Uh, but it's where we're at, and so we've got to learn to do it well. I heard the story of a 12-year-old boy who was having his very first visit with the orthodontist, And you know how they have you fill out that initial paperwork to get to know you? He wanted to make a good impression on the doctor. So on the question that said, what are your hobbies, he wrote this in, video games, soccer, bike riding, and flossing. (laughs) Which just reminded me that we start pretty early in life to care about the impression that we make on other people, don't we? To the point where we sometimes stoop to claiming to be something that we're not. And there is a word for that kind of deceit. It's called hypocrisy. We know about that. You ever played the board game Sorry? Uh, Back in the day of board games, it existed, and it was one of the early ones. Sorry. Remember, sorry, you would move your piece around the game board trying to reach the end before those that you're playing against. And if you landed on the space where someone already was, you got to send them back. You sent them back to the beginning. And the rules say that when you do that you're supposed to say sorry. Yeah, right. Sorry. Well, no, you're not sorry. You're trying to beat them. And You're not uh, meaning it if you say, sorry, there it is, sorry, the ultimate game of hypocrisy. There is a town hall that stands near London, England. It was built in the 1600s, Windsor Town Hall. It was built by Sir Christopher Wren. At the time, he was noted to be one of England's greatest architects. And this included a a huge vaulted ceiling held up by pillars around the building. And after the city fathers came to see the finished building, they looked at it and had concerns that the great big ceiling couldn't possibly stand on its own. And they told Sir Wren he needed to add more pillars for support. Well, here is the greatest architect of his day. He knew that it had adequate support. He was insulted by them telling him to add these pillars, so he added four more pillars that went right up to the ceiling, but that didn't quite reach it. (laughs) It's an illusion. And to this day, you can visit that building, and there is a gap above these four pillars that appear to be doing something, but they're really not doing anything. They just look like they are. He kind of got even with them. Even buildings can be hypocritical. Isn't that interesting? One of the characteristics that I've often heard that's desired by the next generation is that they would like to see authenticity. I hear that word a lot, authenticity. I want people to be authentic, at least in some places that's true. It doesn't make any sense to me that people listen to and celebrate the people in our culture whose whole life is about acting like being something that they are not. We call them actors. Ancient actors, by the way, were called hypocrites in Greek. That's where we get the word hypocrite from. It was the word that was used for actors. Sometimes the actors that we pay so much attention to will play so many roles, they will even play more than one role in one movie actors, hypocrites, if you will. Down deep, people realize there's a level of hypocrisy all around us, and we get to the point where we just tend to live with it. But the church, have you noticed, is one group of people where that doesn't get allowed. We've been held to a higher standard. The church is full of hypocrites, and therefore bad. I never liked that idea. I never liked the idea that everyone else would look in at the church and say, you should have a higher standard. But you know what? We should uphold a higher standard. Shouldn't we? We should. Jesus condemned hypocrisy. Thoroughly condemned hypocrisy. Imagine just for a moment, if this group of people that gathers in this place on Sunday morning and in Bible studies and in small groups and in ministry groups, if it really was a group of people who were genuine, who were authentic, the real thing. What if this became the one place that people could look at and say with confidence, they are real? Wouldn't that be a great thing? Yesterday, when a thousand-some people... Descended onto our parking lot, looked around our building, ate our pie, looked into our eyes, heard our voices. We were working to try to accomplish that, weren't we? One of the guys driving off yesterday said to me, this is my favorite car show of all. I heard that again this morning in a text. Many others, as they were leaving, said to me, thanks, I'll be back next year. Now, why did they say that? Because our pie here is better than pie anywhere else? Because they've never seen a better collection of cars in one place because of some other reason? I'm going to lean towards this. I'm going to lean towards this thought that those people who came here yesterday saw a bunch of people in outrageous orange and yellow T-shirts all working together, working hard to let them know that we are sincerely interested in them and care about them. And folks, if we got that across yesterday, that sincerity can go a long way. I looked all, all over this past week trying to find a story that I had used years ago I remember hearing it, reading it for the first time, and a lot of the details of it, but for the life of me, I could not put my hands on it. So I'm going to recall it to the best of my memory to you this morning, but I've got to admit I lost my original source on this true story. It's a story of a mission trip that was made by a group down into some country in South America. And this group was there for the purpose of preaching and teaching, and they obtained an invitation to a prison there in South America. This prison is quite different from the U.S. prisons. It's an open-air prison, kind of a, a camp setting. And basically the guys are there without cells. They operate as a kind of a gang inside of the prison. They depend on their own family members on the outside for food. So it's quite different from our prisons. Well, this small, short-term mission team got the opportunity to go to this prison, and needless to say, that was kind of intimidating. It's already in a foreign country. How would you like to walk into a prison like that uh, to teach and preach the gospel? And they were already being looked at with very skeptical eyes as they came in to meet these guys. Well, the the guy who was kind of the head prisoner, if you will, like the gang leader of that whole situation, had the leader of the mission team come and sit down with him. He said, we're going to eat together. So this guy from the United States sits down, and this guy who's a prisoner shoves in front of him a bowl of what he described as green stuff and produced from his back pocket a dirty spoon and handed it to him and then just kind of sat back. And looked at him. Now imagine yourself being this guy for a moment. It's already a difficult situation. And he's looking at that spoon and he's looking at this green stuff and he's thinking about the situation. And so with a lot of prayer, he says to the Lord, You know, Lord, please don't let this food or these people kill me, and takes a bite of the green stuff and gulps it down. And the moment that he did that, this guy who was watching him stands up and says to all the other prisoners, hey, these guys are for real. Let's listen to them. The need for the next generation to be convinced that the church is credible, genuine, authentic, sincere, real, must not be a new thing. The fact is, The Holy Spirit saw a need to speak about this in the year A.D. 55 as the Apostle Paul was writing the letter to Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians. Open up your Bibles, if you will, please, to the book that we call First Corinthians. It's a letter. And go to chapter 9. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in the city of Corinth. During his second missionary journey, you can read about it in Acts 18, Paul stopped in Corinth, and there he met a man named Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. They happened to be skilled at the same trade that Paul was skilled at. They made tents. So the uh, Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul tent manufacturing company worked for a while there in Corinth. Paul stayed with them and worked making tents. Corinth was an immoral city. It had a reputation that way, and the church there had its share of issues too, as young Christians tried to grow up in a city full of difficult situations. A lot of struggles, a lot of questions. Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address some of those struggles and questions that those Christians had. And among the challenges that surrounded the believers of that area was idol worship, Idol worship complete with temples all in that area to Asclepius, Apollo, Athena, Aphrodite, Demeter, and Kor, Palamon, Sisyphus, as well as some Egyptian deities like Isis and Serapis. All your favorites. And it was really common for the animals that were sacrificed in those temples to those, quote, gods, that meat was then taken out to the marketplace and sold. So a problem arose among the Christians there. Hey, is it really okay to eat a goat that was sacrificed to Apollo? That's a good question. And so Paul addresses that very question here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8. And the short version is, it's okay. (laughs) That's the short answer. Apollo is nothing. That doesn't change. The meat hasn't been changed, but Paul writes... If you go ahead and you eat something that has been sacrificed to an idol and there's another person who has weak faith and that destroys that person's faith, then it's better not to eat it. You might have a moral right to eat it. It might be morally okay, but exercising that right is less important than another person's soul. Let that soak in. That's chapter 8. And in chapter 9, we're going to camp out today, Paul expands on that whole issue. He talks about the rights that he has as an apostle, but he also talks about the way that he makes the choice not to exercise those rights because it'll give him a better opportunity to help people. He talks about it again in chapter 10, and so that's the context of this chapter that we're looking at today. I'd like to start reading in verse 1. Paul says there, chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So right away in these first verses here, Paul is citing his credibility. He has a credible calling. No one can say Paul is not an apostle. He was called by the grace of God to serve as an apostle. In fact, in chapter 15, he points out, after all the other apostles were in place, he says, and, and then later, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul was made an apostle. Sometimes Paul had to remind his readers of his position as an apostle. His words that he wrote and spoke, were not just his own. His writing is not just the writing of a man. He was God's spokesman, writing, speaking God's words on his behalf. Think about that, by the way, the next time that you hear somebody trying to wear the title apostle. That's no small thing. Along with Paul's credible calling as an apostle, there were also some certain rights. You ever have a piece of paper that has your name and some other signatures on it and it says something like and all the rights and privileges thereunto look at some of them chapter 9 verse 4 here's what he says do we not have the right to eat and drink do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the lord and cephas So Paul is saying there's no special dietary restrictions because of being an apostle. He had the right, in fact, to be married. He had the right to have a wife traveling along with him in his mission work, just like the other apostles, he said, including Peter. In verse 6, he's asking more rhetorical questions. You know what rhetorical questions are, don't you? Think about that. All right. So he's asking some more rhetorical questions, and they're all about another right that he had as an apostle. The right, he says, to make his living off of his ministry work. That was a long-standing principle that God had put into place. Skip down to verse 9. It was written, for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And here's Paul's point. As an apostle, Paul had a God-given principle he could have called upon. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But when Paul was in Corinth, Acts 18, here's what he did. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. You see, Paul rightfully could have just relied on the church to provide for him, and he instead housed with Aquila and Priscilla and worked as a tradesman making tents. At least for that period, this is what Paul was doing, and he was what's today become become known as a bivocational minister. He worked in ministry, worked, and he worked at a trade. Not only did he have a special calling as an apostle that was credible, but his behavior showed how he was very sincere that his concern was to share the good news with people in the very best way that he possibly could. So not only was his calling credible, but his behavior was credible. And this really is the main point of what I am trying to help us all see here today. Here it is in a single line, okay, that as followers of Jesus... We have the opportunity to give up our rights in order to reach others for Jesus. In fact, we must. And this is the example that Paul left, and you're going to see it's exactly the example that Jesus gave. Paul had all these rights. He had a a right to eat and drink without any special restrictions. He had a a right to to the help and the comfort of a wife alongside him in his ministry work. He had a right to have the people of the church providing for his means instead of running a side hustle. No one could look at Paul's behavior and say that he wasn't credible. Instead, he gave up those rights. And he proved this. Not only was his calling and his behavior credible, but it proved that his heart was credible. Let's go on reading in chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. All right, let's back up the truck here and and just look at these three things that he talks about becoming. Verse uh, verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul was a super Jew. <laughs> Paul was Jewish to the hilt. He had the right pedigree, he had the right education, he had the right resume, and once he became a Christian, Paul took that very Jewish background and he put it to good use. When he went on missionary journeys, it was his custom first to go to the synagogues, where the Jews were, where Paul would open up the Jewish scriptures, and from the Jewish scriptures, reason with the Jewish people how Jesus was the Messiah that was promised there. On his second missionary journey, when Timothy became his traveling companion, Paul circumcised Timothy so that they wouldn't be offensive to the Jews that they were going to be visiting and trying to reach. In other parts of his travels, Paul participated in some special Jewish vows, not because he needed to, but for the sake of being able to connect with the people who had a Jewish background. In other words, Paul gave up his rights. Paul did things he didn't have to do. To the Jews, he became like a Jew. Verse 21: To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul was not only Jewish, Paul was born a Roman citizen. Paul understood what he needed to do to relate to people who weren't Jewish. And when people wrongly tried to force Judaism into Christianity, Paul wouldn't stand for it. He called Peter on the carpet for treating non-Jewish people differently. He warned the Galatians not to try to be saved by grace while also trying to rely on the Jewish law as a way to be saved. He spoke to the Greek philosophers of the time on a level that connected with them. He even quoted their writers. He spoke to people who were all caught up in idol worship. And he said, I see that you worship a lot of gods. Even one that's unnamed got an idol to an unknown god. Let me tell you about your unknown god. To those who were outside of the Jewish law, he became like someone outside of the law. Verse 22, this one caught me a little different. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Read over what Paul did. He was not a weak person, but apparently he was careful not to make weak people somehow feel like they had less worth in God's sight. The fact is, in fact, Paul had in his life some kind of weakness that God allowed to bother him. He called it his thorn in the flesh. He said it was a messenger of Satan that was there to torment him. The word means to punch him. And with God's help, Paul concluded that his weakness wasn't a bad thing. It was, in fact, something that God could use, a way that God could show his perfect power. And so Paul was okay with that weakness. It's not much fun admitting that you're hurting, is it? It's not much fun to have to revisit some horrible difficulty of your past so that you can sit down and talk to somebody else and relate to what they're facing now. But I also find it's the best way sometimes to help a person who's going through some real junk in life. To the weak, Paul became like he's weak. 1 Corinthians 9 is where Paul talks about the way that he took deliberate action to reach a variety of cultures. He might even say, well, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Because Paul was choosing what Jesus wanted, not what Paul wanted. He could have chosen to claim his rights. Instead, he chose to be something else. Flip ahead to chapter 10. Verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Church, this is pretty contrary to culture, isn't it? Think about this. It may be one of the ways that the differences between generations really stand out right now. Because people all over are pretty hopped up about their rights. I have a right. And it seems like all around me there are people who expect everyone else to make room for however they want to express themselves. And if I don't make room for that, I'm a hater. What are we supposed to do with all of that? Should we really just kowtow to every changed word definition, every new idea that comes up, no matter how false, no matter how harmful it is? What do we do? I'm glad you asked that. Paul's example here is the same as that of Jesus Christ. Give up your rights for the sake of others' good. Not for the sake of their rights, but for the sake of reaching them with the truth of the gospel. Not for the sake of just trying to satisfy everyone's ideas, but for the sake of them knowing the truth. That's where the rubber meets the road. If I really have a concern about reaching the next generation with the message of Jesus, it means I'll give up my rights instead of insisting on them. Doesn't that sound like fun? So what should Central Christian Church do? I want to suggest two things specifically this morning that we should do as a result of this, that when it comes to us personally, you and me individually. There's a good quote that I've, you've probably heard, and, and it's usually attributed to John Wesley, but after digging on it, there's no one can find that John Wesley necessarily said this, all right? That's okay. Turns up in a variety of forms, and it goes something like this. Do all the good you can By all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can, or ever you can. That fits on every one of us, doesn't it? Paul's words here are pretty well summed up in that, I think. Reach every person that you possibly can. You, individually. Reach every person you possibly can. By the way, don't confuse that with your one person, right? We've got a one person that we've named that we're praying for and we're looking for opportunity to share the gospel with them. 72 names up on the wall that we're praying for, that one person. Don't confuse that with what I just said. If God puts somebody in your path today, your path tomorrow, be present for that person too. I mean, if some total stranger or somebody you know says to you, man, I wish there was just something true that I could count on in life, don't look at that person and say, well, I'm sorry, you're not my one person. I can't tell you about it. Okay, That's not how it works. What have you been unwilling to give up for the sake of sharing Jesus with whoever? What have you been unwilling to let go of? Let it go. Let it go. Here's the second thing. As a church family that we can do, and that is we should come to grips with the necessity of reaching a younger generation, which means following the example of Paul here. Go ahead, make a list of your credentials, your rights, a list of all of the reasons that your church should be the way that you want for it to be, In fact, you can even hunt around for a different church until you find the one that fits your criteria. And I'll refer you to a man named Paul who could have done the same, but instead he didn't consider his rights to be more important than the souls of other people. That's what we can do as a church. We can have that attitude. And then I'll remind you of something that I said we need to remind one another of as we step forward into the future and that is this, that the church belongs to Jesus Christ and it ought to reflect his desires. It should also reflect his example, shouldn't it? We could talk about Paul's example all day here, but really what we're talking about is the example that Jesus set. Jesus, who being God, had the right to anything that he chose to do. Jesus' choice was to let go of his rights and become a man. The one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth of every mine entered into a time in world history when poverty was the norm. The king of all kings was born into an obscure setting under an oppressive government. He who is the image of the invisible God became a man who had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He who made the journey from heaven to earth traveled probably nowhere outside of the Middle East during his years here. The one through whom and for whom all things are created had to ask a woman with a bad reputation to give him a drink of water at a well outside of the city of Sychar. The one who was with God and who was God in the beginning, who spoke creation to existence, became God with us and was bound by that same creation, by the laws of physics, by time, by space, by everything that goes with that. When a mob came to arrest him, he who could have summoned 12 legions of angels to come and fight on his behalf and free him, gave it up. The one who healed lepers and cripples and the blind and the deaf and raised the dead was beaten and nailed to a cross until he died. The whole gospel story is the story of God through his son, Jesus Christ, giving up his rights so that you and I could have the right to be called children of God. That's the message today. That's what God calls us to be and to do. That's the example that we follow when we follow Jesus Christ. And it might be this morning that you understand that's a right, you don't deserve it, but that God is affording to you that you would like to have. If that's you this morning, then we're inviting you to accept Jesus as Lord of your life, to start your walk of faith with him and follow him for the rest of your life into eternity. If you're joining us online this morning and that's what you want to do, we're asking you please to contact us. Uh, Get in touch with us right now in the comments on Facebook or write to us by email, contact our office. Get in touch with us and let us share with you from God's Word about how you can become a Christian, what the next steps are to be a follower of Jesus. If you're here in person this morning, need to make that choice, we're ready for you. Our baptistry is ready because Jesus says that you come to him and acknowledge that he is who he claimed to be. You repent of your old way of life. You're baptized into him. He gives you a promise that your old self is buried, your sins are forgiven, and his Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you. That can begin here today. What a great day this could be, couldn't it? if there's someone who needs to make that decision that will come. Will you please stand up with me? We're going to pray together. We want this to be the time that you give serious thought to your relationship with the Lord, especially what you will do with his word that we have just looked at. So let's pray about that, and let's make good choices. Father, thank you that you let us be here today. Thank you that we have your word to place in front of us and to consider. Father, we know that it's not just the words of men. It is your word uh, written through people that you inspired to write it. And now we're here uh, receiving the blessing of being able to look at it and to consider it. Father, we acknowledge before you that our selfish tendency is to grasp at our rights and to hang on to those things that we don't want to lose. But God, I pray today you'll re-impress upon our minds how loosely Jesus hung on to the very most wonderful of rights. How he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of mankind. Thank you for that perfect Savior, the perfect example. That's how we want to be. So, Father, whatever that means, we need to change about ourselves. Today, we invite you to work on our hearts and make us like him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.